Hey there, this is Paul Roberts of the Security Ledger. If security and the Internet of Things are your thing, I wanted to let you know about a great event Security Ledger is hosting on June 19th in Boston. It's the fifth Security of Things Forum. It's a full day of great content on securing the Internet of Things. If you're interested in learning more and either presenting or just attending the forum, text the word THINGS, that's T-H-I-N-G-S, to the number 345-345 on your cell phone. That's THINGS to 345-345. You can also point your web browser to the event website, securityofthings.com, to learn more, to submit an abstract for a talk, or to register. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast number 95, a group of researchers from some of the U.S.'s finest universities took on the challenge of delving into the security of connected devices. What they found probably won't surprise you, but their solution to the problem of IoT insecurity may, a tool called the IoT Inspector. We'll talk to one of the creators about the growing need for tools that consumers can use to secure their homes and even workplaces from insecure connected devices. But first, when celebrated electronics recycler Eric Lundgren was sentenced to 15 months in prison and fined $50,000 last month for printing Microsoft Windows Restore Discs to extend the lives of recycled computers, the most common reaction from the technology community was, how could this happen? But the ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit was just the latest battle in a decades-long movement towards harsher and more punitive enforcement of copyright laws since the passage in 1998 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA. Lundgren's case marks just the latest battle on the DMCA's ever-expanding front, but could it also mark a turning point? In our first segment, we invited two experts into the Security Ledger studio to discuss Lundgren's case and where things go from here. Jen Granick is a surveillance and cybersecurity counsel with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project and the author of a book, American Spies, Modern Surveillance, Why You Should Care, and What to Do About It. Kyle Weens is the founder of iFixit.com, the free repair manual, and an outspoken advocate of the right to repair. Kyle Weens from iFixit and Jennifer Granick from the ACLU, welcome to the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure. So uh, we're speaking about the case with Mr. Lundgren and kind of how this came about. It's a really odd case involving restore disks for Windows systems that contain software that you know, Microsoft gives away for free for folks who need to reinstall the operating system. You know, they don't have licenses on them. And uh, talk about what Eric was doing here and, and kind of how he ran afoul of both Microsoft and uh, the Department of Justice in, in this case. Right. So what I understand is that Eric had identified a problem in the market, and probably a lot of us ran into this back in the day, where you had like a Dell laptop, and there was the Windows XP Restore CD that came with the laptop, and you need that if you need a new driver or if you need to wipe Windows and reinstall it. Uh, and those those driver disks, for whatever reason, were kind of particular to the manufacturer. 
So a Dell Restore disk didn't work very well on a Lenovo machine. So Eric said, well, these disks are, uh, I mean, according to him, and I haven't, I haven't verified this, but he says those, the, the, the disk image you could actually download from Microsoft or Dell's website. Um, so what Eric decided to do was, was just have somebody in China print up. He made 28,000 of these disks and brought them into the U.S. with the plan of distributing and reselling them to, uh, to refurbishers and recyclers for something like 25 cents each. He just wanted to cover his cost. And what he was identifying is, hey, these, these disks, they, they came with every single computer. Uh, they should have kind of moved along the flow with the computer, but of course the owners lost them and threw them in the trash when they bought the new computer. And so the disks aren't, aren't making their way along uh, with the products. And it's not even, he, he, the goal isn't really for the refurbishers to be using these disks. It's more for when they're Furbisher sold the product to a customer so that, that it would come with the disc so that you could you could you know, do troubleshooting or repairs on your own if you bought these machines. It seems to really center on whether these things had any value at all. In other words, if you if you are selling something that somebody is basically giving away for free, does that constitute fraud or piracy? Yeah, I mean, if you can't activate the software without a license key and it's pretty much has zero value on the market because Microsoft's giving it away for free, all you're really doing is providing a convenience for the customer. And there's really no copyright interest that goes against somebody outside, a third party, providing this convenience for the customer. He was doing this to kind of help people who were buying restored computers and, again, was saying he was only doing it for restored computers that had had an active Microsoft license associated with them. Uh, Was the court kind of going out of bounds in its ruling here or is this pretty much where we are right now with, you know, anti-piracy suits? You know, copyright law can be so out of control, but I really do think that this is controversial and seems pretty out of bounds. He pled guilty to having the packaging on the outside of the CDs look like it was an official CD coming from Dell, the manufacturer of the computers. But the sentencing focused on the value of the software that was on the discs. And, you know, he was selling the discs for 25 cents a piece, but the value of the software, given that Microsoft gives it away for free, could very well be zero. So you have a case with, you know, sort of zero economic damages for Dell, zero economic damages for Microsoft, and yet here he is going to prison for more than a year. Was Dell even a party to any of this? Well, it, the United States is the party because they're the prosecutors. And then, uh, you know, they ask the companies to come and participate in the sentencing and provide expert testimony during the court hearing or any court hearings or that kind of thing. And I have, we haven't heard much about what Dell's role in all of this was, but Microsoft did provide some expert testimony. I think Dell was hiding. <laughs> Dell didn't want any part of it. Well, that was smart. I mean, Microsoft has worked very closely over the years with um, the FBI on anti-piracy efforts. And, you know, we know that sometimes where there's been raids to go after people who are mass producing valuable software of Microsoft's that, you know, along with the FBI, the Microsoft people are right there. So there's a very close working relationship between the company and the government in going after these kinds of cases. But here you have somebody who is you know, very clearly interested in recycling e-waste. And, you know, to go after him is really just such a such a reach and, and you know, it actually has a negative impact um, because you're going after somebody who's helping the environment. And I, I talked with Microsoft's refurb team three, four years ago about this and said, hey, I understand you're, you're going after piracy cases. This probably isn't a good one to go after. And they they said, you know, we're so far committed with this, we're going to lose a lot of face with the FBI if we back out now. And so they decided to keep their head down to it and, and keep pursuing it. 
But you don't see you don't see customs. You know, the customs seizes thousands of shipments a day. They're not pursuing criminal charges against really any of them. It's only where you have a company behind the scenes driving things, saying we really want to make an example of this that they're going to pursue criminal claims. One quote I think it was from the Post article that. Uh, Eric related was a U.S. attorney telling him that, quote, Microsoft wants your head on a platter and I'm going to give it to them. Now, that wasn't attributed and we have no idea whether that was actually said. It does hint that behind the aggressive prosecution was Microsoft Corp. Well, I mean, I agree with Kyle. If you have a, a, an alleged victim who's like, look, I don't really care, the government's incentive to go after it is really minimal. They might, if it's something they think is creating this like great public harm to other people. But this just really doesn't seem to be that kind of case. Kyle, I think there was a question here, as there often is in in your work on right to repair, as to whether the judges in the appeals court understood really the technical issues at stake here, really maybe even understood what a restored disk was and what its purpose was. Microsoft kind of made some vague sounding warnings about malware and security risks that I think all of us would recognize are probably uh, overblown. You're not going to get malware from a DVD these days. (laughs) How important is kind of that lack of technological literacy in some of these head-smacking rulings and uh, legal decisions. I think we see that a lot. In this case, the question is, what what is the value? Is the value of the license or is the value of the bits on the disk? Uh, and I find it interesting that all, all along Microsoft has been saying, hey, you don't actually own your copy of Windows. You just have a license to use it. And then we come to a case where he's not selling the license. He's selling the disk. And they're saying, oh, that disk all of a sudden has a lot of value. It feels like they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Jen? I mean, technological expertise in a court is um, very important. Uh, It's important in cases like this where you need to understand how the software works, what the role of the license is, when it's, you know, and, and, uh, you know, what the what the uh, business model is. Um, It's important in, uh, you know, cases involving uh, DMCA circumvention and understanding, you know, what that's about in cases we've seen about Uh, you know, recycling cell phones, about aftermarket garage door openers. And, you know, as we live in an increasingly technological world, understanding software and technology is really important. And, you know, it's hard for the public and it's hard for courts. We need to find a way to provide that technological expertise and not just from the litigants who have a vested interest in the case, but, but an independent assessment. Right. And one thing that we're seeing over and over is it's not just technological expertise in general. It's technological expertise about some particular topic. Uh, we we had the triennial DMCA hearings over the last few weeks. And, and last week I was in UCLA testifying in front of the Copyright Office. And in the span of an hour, they were asking me questions about uh, technological protection measures on game consoles, on automotive telematic systems, on smart wireless mesh networks. Like, these are so many different uh, complex topics. I happen to be a technological generalist, so I know a little bit about a lot of things and I've, and I've been helpful in, the, in that context but it's it's crazy to have to expect judges to be experts at all of these different types of technology but that's what's happening yeah Kyle I totally agree with that and I also think in the you know in the legislators too I mean one of the reasons why you were before the panel trying to get an exemption for is for circumvention um, is because Congress passed the DMCA's anti-circumvention law which says you're not allowed to subvert digital rights management on software and you know if the court had really understood that they would see 
that there are all kinds of situations where, you know, the way they phrased it makes stuff illegal that shouldn't be illegal from recycling cell phones to, you know, making copies of software you already own and have a license for. And so, you know, there's really a need for more technological expertise in specific areas for lawmakers. And I think, Kyle, as you were indicating, as, as sort of the Internet of Things takes hold, as more and more devices are software-driven and have some measure of probably uh, uh, content protection in them, um, these types of appeals are going to are gonna metastasize, right? I mean, it used to be, you know, uh, uh, CD and DVD rippers or something like that that you were advocating on behalf of and and now it's it could be anything, really. Right. Well, I see it as, as as points of control. These are opportunities for the manufacturer to control what happens with their devices. Uh, I, one of the exemptions that we were applying for was to be able to do repair on game consoles where the, the Blu-ray drive and the main board are coupled together on an Xbox or on a PlayStation. And we had the Entertainment Software Association representing Microsoft saying, no, people shouldn't be able to repair their game consoles. So uh, it's it's frustrating to see this pattern of behavior on, on Microsoft's part where they're 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 going after people sharing restore CDs. They're arguing for a entrenched 1201 protection mechanism where they can go after people that are repairing Xboxes. The FTC just sent them a letter telling them to stop putting warranty void if removed stickers on devices. We're just seeing over and over and over again Microsoft deciding that they're going to shut down the repair ecosystem. You know, you see certain companies once they are, you know, in the hardware business, they want to sell more and more hardware and it gets to the point where people think when you buy a copy of software you own that copy of software. And, you know, some of us who are a little more sophisticated about the law realize sometimes that's true. And a lot of times it's not true. But I think everybody believes that when you buy a game console or you buy a phone, you own that object and you can do with that object what you please. And and what's happening is that companies are using law that applies to software copyright law to try to take away rights that we've had for decades in, in physical items. As software moves into everything, it means IP law is starting to govern what we can do with our personal property rather than personal property law. And exactly. that's, that's really unintuitive. Is this, uh, I, I think you maybe just answered this next question, but obviously it sounds like this is part of a trend. So Eric is a particularly, um, this is a particularly egregious case and it's getting a lot of press in part because what he's doing is so clearly beneficial to the world and to the environment and, and to the whole technology ecosystem as a, as a recycler of electronic waste. That just makes it all the more ironic. But my guess is that there are a lot of other people out there who maybe aren't as altruistic as Eric, but are just repair people or companies making aftermarket parts that are also ending up in legal hot water just like he has. Absolutely. There is a repair shop in Norway that that, uh, was sued by Apple over trademark infringement for importing repair parts and they actually they had had the Apple logo and they had they had blacked out the Apple logo on a, on a cable before they imported the parts because they said look I just want the part I don't want to be infringing your trademark and and the uh, the Norwegian court actually sided with the repair shop and said Apple was overstepping their bounds but we're we're seeing this over and over where the traditional framework of intellectual property laws and uh, the repair ecosystem where we need to be able to reuse and repurpose and modify products are really colliding in a big way right now I have seen this for years I mean this isn't the 
kind of work that I do at the ACLU these days. But, you know, years ago, back in 1998, I represented some repair people who Hewlett-Packard went after for repairing Hewlett-Packard computers. And in 2006, I applied for an exemption so that people could unlock their, their cell phones and those phones could be recycled and sent to, you know, other countries where people wanted to buy a $5 flip phone, you know, just as the market in America was collapsing for that. TrackPhone opposed opposed that exemption. And so, you know, this has been an ongoing problem. I think it's it's escalating as, you know, companies' business models evolve around the idea that they can use software to control what people do with hardware. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so upset about this, because it just seems like we're not getting wiser. Jen, is this a case that could end up in the Supreme Court? And do you think it's going to come to that? Well, my understanding is that Mr. Lundgren didn't intend to appeal his sentence. And, you know, it would be a long road from, you know, even if he did appeal, I think it would be a long road from here to the Supreme Court. But I do think that these issues having to do with what people's rights are and the things that they buy, you know, are getting looked at by the appellate court. And what is the proper fix for this, Jen and Kyle? How do we, you know, create a space where folks like Eric can make use of and extend the life of electronics and uh, without ending up in the slammer? I think Jen and I probably have a lot of ideas about how to fix the law, but I don't think that we should let Microsoft off the hook on this. This is a case that was driven by them. They decided they wanted to throw a recycler in jail. They are systematically opposing oppositions to freedoms like 1201 exemptions for repairing game consoles. Microsoft has decided, and it seems like a relatively recent thing, that they want to stifle the repair ecosystem. And I think a lot of your your listeners are a avid Microsoft enthusiast. I really like a, a lot of what they've done. Windows 10 is the best version of Windows they've ever made. I have a lot of friends that work at Microsoft. So I think we need to hold them to account and say this is not a corporate position that you guys want to be taking. Jen? I think that's a much straighter path from here to having this not happen again. You know, we can try to change the law, but I think changing the, the politics is important. Yeah, I guess, although that it's a little bit of a boil the ocean, because for every Microsoft, there's going to be a, an Apple or an Amazon or whomever who comes along and, and kind of picks up where they left off. What is the legal fix, Jen? Is it revisiting the DMCA? I think maybe first a more robust understanding of what fair use means under the Copyright Act. I think um, revisiting the DMCA, you know, you can look at what the exemptions have been over the couple of years. Um, you know, people have to apply for those every three years, which is pretty exhausting because it's a very yep. long process. You know, if you look at the exemptions and the pattern of exemptions, you could legislate those and just put them in the law as permanent fixes. And then potentially we need to stop having copyright be a criminal offense. <laughs> you want know, to step back and say, why, why is he going to jail for, for copying some DVDs? Yeah. This should have been a civil case. Uh, why is it a criminal case, Jen? It's a criminal case because of uh, Brian Lamakia, one of our colleagues in the computer hacking world. And, you know, he, there was a situation where um, he copied a bunch of software. I forget. I think it was up on a message board. And there was no criminal case because he wasn't selling the software. He was giving it away for free. It was freely accessible. And at that time, uh, copyright was only criminal if there was a sale. Um, and the Congress passed a law called the No Electronic Theft Act, or the NET Act, which changed copyright law to say that it could be criminal based on the value of the software, not based on the commercial gain of the infringer. And, you know, since then, 
it's metastasized because not just the definition of crime, but also the sentencing is based on the perceived value of the software. And we don't have a realistic uh, understanding or assessment on what the value of the software is. For example, in this case, initially, they, uh, the government told Mr. Lundgren that they were valuing each CD at something like $250, which was the price of a brand new Microsoft license when he was selling the CDs for 25 cents and really the software was being given away for free. Right. And then they, they later reduced that to $25. But of course, the quantity of CDs that he had ordered uh, still put it over $700,000. I think from eight, $8 million was the original estimate. Yeah, so you could also do a lot of work with this with changing the way the sentencing works and having a more realistic way of assessing the um, harm from infringement. So even if you think non-commercial infringement should be a crime, and I think there are a lot of reasons uh, to, to believe that, you could have a more realistic idea of sentencing. And then realistically, you know, the government doesn't prosecute people for misdemeanors or, or rather the federal government doesn't prosecute people for misdemeanors or for very low level economic loss. Okay, guys, let's end on a happy note. Is there reason for optimism around any of this stuff? Or are we heading into a period where these types of uh, suits and these types of sentences are becoming more common, where we see our uh, kind of corner repairman carted off in cuffs? I think it's possible to use this as a you know, this shall never happen again moment. Uh, Eric's going to go to prison. Uh, he's going to uh, not stop talking about this, uh, both, both before he goes to prison and, and after he gets out. I think we're going to see this as a catalyst for more action. We had Microsoft was able to shut down the right to repair law that was proposed in Washington uh, a few months ago. And now uh, Eric's case is causing increased uh, pressure for this to happen in New York. So there's so much pressure, there's so much interest in the solution of this at, at a legislative level across the country, and I think from consumers, that I think we can use this as, as maybe the final straw. And, and what would the law, legal changes be in, in New York State? Sure. The right to repair law that they're proposing would require manufacturers make service diagnostics available, uh, right. service manuals, and parts. So it wouldn't specifically address this challenge, but it would start to you know, get more of an ecosystem happening and a legal framework for supporting lawful repair. Jen Granick of the ACLU and Kyle Weens of iFixit, thanks so much to both of you for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, pleasure to talk to you. Good talk to you, Jen. Bye. Up next, if you're listening to this podcast and you're probably aware that the Internet of Things is a morass of poorly coded, poorly architected, and loosely deployed devices, but how do you know whether the devices that happen to be attached to your home network are secure or whether they're among the population of insecure and vulnerable IoT endpoints? That's the question that researchers at Princeton, NYU, and UC Berkeley set out to answer. Their solution was IoT Inspector a software tool that can analyze the traffic on a network, identify connected things, and then analyze them for security weaknesses. In our second segment, we invited Noah Apthorpe, a PhD student in the computer science department at Princeton and one of the creators of IoT Inspector, to come in and talk about his group's work. To start, I asked Noah to talk about the origins of his research and what kinds of devices he and his colleagues ended up studying. Uh, I'm Noah Apthorpe. I'm a PhD student at the computer science department at Princeton University. We've been concerned for a little while about uh, security risks and privacy risks that are posed by uh, these smart devices that are designed for people's homes. Uh, and these devices range from uh, things like smart thermostats and light bulbs to personal assistants like an Amazon Echo or a Google Home. 
probably if you've been in any of you know, a number of stores lately, you've seen that these are becoming a lot more popular. And we were wondering uh, so what these devices were doing to preserve and protect people's privacy and, and prevent them from being at risk for hacking or other sort of intrusion. The main group of researchers is from the Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. And we also have researchers who are helping from the NYU Computer Science Department uh, and from uh, UC Berkeley. What devices did you guys look at and assess? Yeah, we have about 50 devices uh, that we've got uh, from a variety of, of types. We've, we looked at um, a Sense Sleep Monitor, Belkin Wemo Switch, and a number of other smart switches, an Amazon Echo, a Google Home, a Nest Security Camera, a Samsung Smart TV, a Bose a speaker. We also have some larger appliances like a, a refrigerator and a uh, washer and dryer. And we're still trying to purchase more, especially ones that people are interested in. Talk about how IoT Inspector works. Right. So IoT Inspector is a tool that we built internally for research and are working on developing a, a version to release to the public uh, that sits uh, in a number of places. The, the version that we're planning to release will actually run on, on a regular laptop and it will uh, configure your LAN, uh, split it into two networks, one of which it will instrument and be able to record uh, network traffic data and analyze that traffic for a, a number of security vulnerabilities that we're concerned about. And uh, what are those security vulnerabilities? What are you looking for? Uh, we've seen in the early research that we've done that many of these devices don't use uh, sort of the basic uh, encryption and authentication techniques that you might expect. Like Many of them don't use uh, SSL. They request personal information from cloud servers without doing any authentication steps. So that, I think, is the first and most basic check that the IoT inspector will perform. Uh, we're also interested in looking at what third parties the different devices communicate with. There's often a surprising number of code libraries, advertising, third-party servers that the devices are talking to, which we're guessing that most consumers are unaware of and might be concerned about. So uh, the IoT inspector will keep a log of what third parties by DNS or by IP uh, devices are communicating with. Yeah, and we've seen this before, for example, in the mobile phone space with the blue phone, right, that there was um, uh, people observed it and said, holy cow, it's sending all this text messages and so on off to these servers in China. And that was that was linked to software that was running on the phone itself uh, from a from a Chinese um, OEM or are these um, are these often the device itself is using a third party library that has its own command and control channel, as it were, or are these often for profit information sharing relationships that the device maker has struck with um, third-party advertisers or, or folks like that? It seems to vary based on the device. The simplest devices, which have like a single function, maybe like a light bulb, seem to have uh, relationships with third parties that are more functional. Like they have a crash reporting service that they use, um, or they have a remote command and control. The more complicated devices like smart TVs and personal assistants one, talk to a wider variety of third parties, and those are more likely to be advertisers um, or entities that, you know, even we're not quite sure what data or how they're using the data they're collecting. How do you assess, because obviously, as you said, not, not all of these third-party communications are necessarily suspicious, malicious, or bad, but I mean, how do you, how are we supposed to understand them or assess them for whether they pose a security and privacy risk or whether they are kosher? 
I think that's a really good question. And it's one that we don't necessarily have the answer to yet. I thought your point earlier about the connections to mobile was important because a lot of these issues, as you said, have have come up before. Like we've dealt with the encryption authentication issues in mobile and in, and in browsers uh, and third parties as well. Third party web tracking has been an issue for a long time now. And I think that probably similar techniques will have to come into play with the IoT devices as uh, are used in, in web browsers. So this might involve additional research to, to look into particular third parties and see what they're doing. It might involve some sort of regulation to um, increase transparency of, of what um, the third parties are doing with your data. Um, the interesting thing is it's still fairly early in uh, the development of most of these IoT devices. So I think there's a lot of directions where this could go uh, that would help consumers and make things easier to understand. Even for devices that encrypted the traffic to and from the IoT endpoint, often user behavior could still be inferred from that encrypted traffic just by observing it. Talk about that. We were interested to see, like you said, if there was a uh, eavesdropper, either you know a neighbor who maybe is able to to listen to your land traffic or a upstream internet provider, what they could learn about you just from looking at the traffic patterns from your devices without having to do any sort of decryption. And we found that because um, a lot of these IoT devices are fairly single purpose or limited purpose, like um, a light bulb only does one thing, a thermostat only controls one aspect of your house typically, uh, that when you see sort of very noticeable changes in the traffic rates from these devices, you can correlate those changes to a behavior that the user did in their home. Um, the, the, the light bulb is, again, the simplest example. You know, if the uh, user switches on the light bulb, the light bulb then sends a notification up to the cloud. So the smartphone app associated with the bulb is updated and shows it in the right state. But that spike in traffic from the notification will indicate that the, the bulb was turned on or off. And uh, you can generalize that style of, of reasoning to more complicated devices uh, that have, may have more important security problems. I think my favorite example is uh, we looked at some traffic from a, a security camera uh, that was set up to do uh, motion detection. Mm-hmm. So this was a camera that you could just leave in your, in your house and, and go about your day. And then if it noticed anything moving around inside your home, it would notify you and you could look at the video, uh, which, is, which, is, which is pretty cool. But... When it did notice uh, any motion, like it had to notify you, presumably you were out of the house, so it would send uh, snapshots or uh, the video itself up to the cloud. And if someone were looking at this traffic, they could tell based off of this you know, when you were home or if there was something going on in your house. Sure. Yeah, the same thing for a sleep monitor uh, that sent notifications, yeah. I noticed you, d- you did look at a sleep monitor. That was actually really kind of fascinating because with most of these devices, and you also looked at like Amazon Echo and a Wemo switch, mm-hmm. it's kind of spikes of activity followed by inactivity. The sleep pattern um, was a much more active graph. I'm guessing what what could we infer just by, again, observing the encrypted traffic from the sleep monitor? Yeah, so it seems to be from, from this sleep monitor we looked at uh, that it's sending data up to the cloud fairly regularly. Um, I, we think it's information about the sleeping environment uh, in wherever you have it set up, but it also seems to send uh, messages with a little bit more information when you do something related to sleep. So like if you wake up or when you go to bed, and then you can pick out those times yeah. from the graph of uh, network traffic and pretty easily tell what the sleeping patterns are of the user. You know, Even though this device is ostensibly doing... Uh, 
SSL encryption and sort of everything by the books, it still is leaking information about the user. One of the things that you say is that the traffic from these devices is predictable. And as a result of that, there should be should be easier to monitor that and and spot unusual behavior and perhaps notify users or even service providers about that. And yet, by and large, that isn't done. Is that right? That seems to be the case. Um, there does seem to be more promise for doing um, anomaly detection on these devices because they are so regular. Um, if you think about uh, web browsing traffic, it can be quite varied, both in terms of uh, time of day that it occurs and even like the, the patterns of traffic itself, because people's browsing uh, activities vary more widely. But if you look at one of these IoT devices, again, it sort of has a limited set of features, set of functions. There's more hope that you could easily determine when something's going wrong based off of deviations from the norm. If you were to distill some of what you discovered in your research into a bullet list of things to address to improve the overall security of the IoT consumer, IoT ecosystem, what would be on that bullet list? I think the the largest item is that the device manufacturers really need to do a better job of paying attention to basic security issues. And you know, it's, it's no secret that adding SSL or some type of encryption will improve both security and privacy. And we're still continuously amazed by how many of these devices that we check don't even do that. Uh, so I think that first, we'd like to see just more attention placed during development on these issues. And, and not only that, we'd like to see that the uh, libraries, which are often developed by third parties and then imported and used by developers, the library developers themselves need to pay attention to security and privacy, obviously, too. But the uh, developers who are importing the libraries, we'd like to have them pay better attention to, one, what the libraries are doing for security, and two, what data is actually being exported to the libraries uh, and their associated third parties. And presumably, if you were to commercialize this tool, would this be a tool for the device makers or for the consumers? I think we're thinking of it mostly as a tool for the consumers uh, and other people who own devices and might be concerned. Mm -hmm. we, we're trying to set it up so that it, it will collect minimal information uh, on its own. We're looking at NetFlow records instead of, of packet captures. And obviously, you know, anyone who decides to use it will be able to opt in mm -hmm. to uh, help us collect data for our research based off of their devices. Did you actually have any interactions or report out to any of the manufacturers involved here? And is there anything coming from, from that interaction? We, we have. We try to reach out to the manufacturers before we publish um, anything about their uh, devices. We've had a bit of a mixed bag of responses with that. Oftentimes, we just don't hear back, period. Occasionally, we do, um, especially if the, the issue reporting is fairly straightforward to fix, and then they, you know, we'll, we'll sometimes say that they appreciate us noticing and we'll make the change. We have some more research that's forthcoming that we've actually held back on publishing because we haven't communicated or heard back from the manufacturer yet. So hopefully, we'll be able to see that soon. Noah Apthorpe of Princeton University, thank you so much for taking time and coming on the Security Ledger podcast to talk about IoT Inspector. Thank you, Paul.